This is a Podcast 225 production. Welcome to the Clay Young Show. And here we are, finally, episode 134 and part three of the O.J. Simpson saga playing out here on the Clay Young Show. Our guest again will be Detective Tom Lang, LAPD, retired. The co-author of the book Evidence Dismissed, the inside story of the police investigation of O.J. Simpson. In parts one and two, you learned about the early morning hours of June 13th when Detective Lang and his partner, Detective Van Adder, got the phone calls respectively telling them that there had been a murder in L.A. They get to the crime scene after other first responders had been there discovering the body of one Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. What happened after the discovery of those bodies on June 13th has become a part of American legal and television history. The book Evidence Dismissed takes you entirely through what happened starting on that early morning in June of 1994, all the way through to the end of the trial the following year during the fall. Evidence Dismissed also takes a look at what has happened since the verdict in the O.J. Simpson murder trial. Some of the players. The book talks about recent developments in the story of O.J. Simpson, as my phone pings there. Recent incidents like the ESPN documentary, recent incidents like the Fox Network movie, the series, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, based upon the book by Jeffrey Tubin. Evidence Dismissed will give you inside information on this case that you may have not known before. And in parts one and two of our conversation here, we've talked about that. I've heard from so many people who have said they have learned more about the O.J. Simpson trial listening to our interviews than they have in the past 20 years of talking about this thing at nauseum. I've also heard from people who have seen comments on social media about our interviews with Detective Lang and who have not either listened to those interviews or read the book. And my reply to all of them when they make comments about evidence and what happened is to either read the book or, hey, if you want the cheat sheet of what the book says, listen to part one, part two, and what is about to follow in part three of our conversation with Detective Lang. I'm no fool. I have believed that O.J. was guilty of these crimes. But I always left open the possibility that anything could happen. Even though it wasn't likely, hey, you know, you never know. I just couldn't buy that someone who was totally innocent could have left all of that evidence and then have conducted himself in the way that he has since the verdict. But then when you read the book and you learn about how much evidence there was, and more importantly, the most dastardly character in this entire saga is likely Mark Furman. And then when you read the book, you learn he might have been capable. He might have been willing. He might have even been interested. But he never had the opportunity to do what the defense accused him of doing. 
those attorneys only did what you would expect them to do because they're being paid by someone who is facing jail for the rest of his life. So what do you do? You throw mud at everything, hoping that some of it sticks and not on your client. And that is what they did. In part three of our conversation with Detective Lang, we go to the courtroom. And we also talk about a witness in this thing that Detective Lang referenced in part two, but you're going to hear the complete story in part three, and it'll blow your mind. And oh, by the way, does he have real heavy thoughts on Mark Furman? You bet he does, and you're going to hear him in part three. And what does he think about the recent OJ hysteria, starting with last year's television to this year's parole hearing? He's going to talk about all of that. Yep. So, one quick bit of business. We'll take a break, and then we will return with part three of our conversation with Detective Tom Lang. I cannot wait to have you hear it. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at ClayYoungBR, on Facebook forward slash ClayYoung. If you have thoughts about this show or others and the previous 133 episodes of this show, You can email me, clay at podcast225.com. While you are at that site, I invite you to listen to the Waiting Room Podcast, hosted by Dr. Mary Catherine Rodrigue and Katie Fetzer. It is, in my opinion, the best mental health podcast out there because they're down to earth, and as you will be able to tell if you listen, absolutely brilliant. So check out the Waiting Room here at podcast225.com. Quick break and back with Detective Tom Lang. Podcasts have become a great way to get radio on demand. If you've wanted your own podcast, the time to call us is now. This year, Podcast 225 will be launching new shows and yours can be one of them. You won't have to build your own website and you'll be able to use professional broadcast equipment that will make your show sound amazing. If you'd like to know more, call 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Be a part of the on-demand audio movement today. The Capital Area Law Enforcement Foundation is hosting a fundraiser on Sunday, August 27th in Perkins Row called A Blue Night Out. The event starts at 6 p.m. and is open to the public. It will feature live music and will honor the law enforcement agencies of the Capital Region. Calif is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that has purchased protective gear for several law enforcement agencies in South Louisiana. Save the date and make sure you attend A Blue Night Out on Sunday, August 27th at 6 p.m. in Perkins Row. This is the Clay Young Show on Podcast225.com. Back with retired LAPD Detective Tom Lang, who, as most of you know now, is a pretty popular guest with all of you listening here at Podcast225.com. Tom, how are you, buddy? Good. How you doing this morning, Clay? I am great. Let's start with the trial. Here it is. The chase is over. You've got Simpson in custody, and now you're about to go to trial. What is your mindset? Well, um, you want to keep things as simple as you can. You don't want to get too involved in this, and you have to be ready for the defense. So basically what I did is, do some very basic boning up on investigative procedure when it comes to homicides, because this bunch of lawyers that we're up against are not what we would call traditional homicide lawyers. In other words, they don't 
defend a lot of homicide suspects. These are people who are uh, have other things that are going on. Now, Johnny Cochran was best known for suing police departments, suing cops, uh, going after cops for for various things. Uh, some justified, some not so much. Uh, you had entertainment lawyers, business lawyers involved. So if they're going to come after me as a homicide cop, it's going to be for some very basic things. So I uh, went over and, in my mind, uh, went through a bunch of very basic homicide-type questions as to time of death, uh, evidence collection, uh, some uh, some technicalities on, uh, on uh, how people die, mode of death, this type of thing, because this is what these people would be asking. And it would also be a lot of gotcha-type stuff. So I prepared myself for that. And in the past, I've noted that the best way to handle these things under pressure is to take your time and never be in a hurry to answer any question. Think it through thoroughly and on purpose, just purposefully delay any answers and draw them out. And if it takes you five minutes to answer a question, you go ahead and you do that. What complicated things for me and others initially, of course, was all of the attention and the fact that this was on live television, which was a horrible mistake because anybody testifying, is, is especially if they're not used to testifying, is very intimidated just being there. But when you're there and 50 million people, and that's a small uh, that's not the, there was a lot more than 50 million as the trial progressed. But that's just a, a, an example of people, you, you, you're trying to address folks that have nothing to do with homicide, they don't know anything about what you're talking about, and you're going to have attorneys going after you for the my, most minor things in the world that have nothing to do with this investigation. So I can imagine people hitting the stand who had no experience. And so it was a major mistake to begin with having the uh, the thing uh, televised in the way that it was because it intimidates people and it, evidence is not going to be presented the way it should. These things should not have been allowed. If you want to videotape these things, you go right ahead and videotape them. And then later on, we'll all sit down and have a bowl of popcorn, perhaps, and <laughs> and we'll watch this thing. But you do not have live coverage on these types of things. So we had to prepare ourselves for that and all sorts of things that would come from left field. Uh, if this was just a case where they were going to present the evidence, it would have been easy. It would have been a walkover, but that's never going to happen with these types of attorneys. At what point did you know that they were just going to make the LAPD the scapegoat on this thing and just attack the department? Well, we we kind of knew that because they were going to the media, and the media, of course, was complicit. They're eating this stuff up because they want conflict in their stories. The defense in this case was a con job from from the get go. This this was this whole thing was a sham. Anything that they would throw out there would have to be challenged by the prosecution. We expected those things to happen, of course, and in many cases, the prosecution didn't challenge they didn't rehabilitate witnesses uh so we were ready for this it shouldn't have happened i think the court should have taken some more control if you have a legitimate complaint if you have a legitimate case that cops planted evidence that cops are racist 
that cops are lying about this, that, and the other, then you put it on. But when you just uh, use supposition and make accusations without evidence to back it up, these are things that should be accepted by the court. And, of course, they were. And, of course, you have everybody in the media eating this stuff up and throwing conflict left and right. And it, the thing was a circus. And, again, the defense was a sham. There was nothing substantive put on as a defense. It was all this could be or that could be. Uh, all cops are racist. They plant evidence. They allude, of course, to the uh, the Rodney King thing, which was a very bad situation. Everybody acknowledges that. But that's not typical. I mean, you have one or two incidents out of hundreds of thousands of police contacts a year, and you have two or three incidents like that, and all of a sudden all cops are, are uh, you know, belong in a zoo somewhere. So we, we had to be prepared for all of that. We expected to be defended, and quite frankly, uh, we weren't. I mean, the, the prosecution did not rehabilitate their witnesses. Let's talk a bit about Jill Shively, who was going to be a very important player in the trial, but never made it to that point because of a decision she made. Yeah. Jill Shively was uh, out driving her vehicle uh, that night, the night of the murders, in the vicinity about two blocks from the, uh, from the crime scene. She was on San Vicente Boulevard. There was very little traffic out at that, uh, that time of night. So we're talking on a Sunday night after 10.30 p.m. Jill was uh, going down San Vicente uh, Boulevard uh, trying to get to a market that closed at 11 p.m. that night a few blocks away. She approached the intersection of San Vicente and Bundy, and as she approached, she saw a, a white Bronco uh, approached the intersection coming from the direction from south to north, and it pulled in front of her and kind of cut her off, and the driver screamed at her and yelled, and, and the driver of this uh, white vehicle was O.J. Simpson. And he yelled or something and swerved around her, cutting her off briefly, and then sped northbound towards the Rockingham location, uh, and, uh, and left. And so she recognized him, but she carried on and went on to the, uh, uh, to the market. She, uh, of course, when this thing broke, she later comes forward and says, uh, you know, it could be important that I saw him about 1035 or 1040, whenever it was that speeding through this intersection and cutting me off and yelling at me because I was in his way. And so she felt that this was important information, which obviously it was. So we, we took all of this down, and uh, she was, turns out uh, to be, in my mind, a very credible witness. Uh, there was no other reason that I could see that she came forward other than just to, to try to help the situation and be a witness. So unfortunately, when we got all this together and got ready for trial, just prior to trial, she goes to, I believe it was Hard Copy, uh, one of these uh, shows that we've seen so much of yeah. over the years, yeah. and sells her story. Uh, so after uh, we, we get the story from her, what she saw, uh, unfortunately, Marsha Clark uh, uh, goes to the uh, grand jury that we had at the time, and tells them to forget everything that uh, about her and that uh, 
she will no longer be used as a witness because of the potential conflict because she was paid for that appearance on hard copy. So you go you go through the grand jury process and then you get to trial. Judge Lance Ito was named. Did you had you known anything about Judge Ito before this trial? I am sorry, something swallowed some coffee the wrong way. <clears throat> no worries. J- Judge Lance Ito yeah. chokes you up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've known Lance Ito for some time. He was a prosecutor <clears throat> with the DA's office. He was a very good prosecutor. He'd handled a serial case that uh, we'd had. And very uh, competent, well-read. And I thought, you know, it'd be an outstanding uh, man on the bench there to handle this particular trial. Uh, so I was confident of that going in. Of course, initially he had problems with Marsha. They just seemed to, to clash. Now, I don't know if this went back to something prior when they worked together in the DA's office or not, or if uh, Judge was Judge Ito was just trying to make it not appear that uh, he was biased in one way or another. Uh, now, he also had, his wife was also a commander with the Los Angeles Police Department. So, some people could assume that maybe there's some kind of a of a conflict because of that, but he apparently wanted the case. I personally knew several judges at the time who don't want anything to do with any high-profile case for all the obvious reasons. But Lance Edo took this on, and I think he wanted to appear objective, and that's perhaps why we saw uh, so many recusals of jurors uh, perhaps that's why we saw some of the things that were so questionable uh, that we saw. But I felt that he would be a fair judge going in, and I honestly believe that he looked at all of this evidence like any other person would and said, well, this is a slam dunk. This is going to fly right through. But, of course, we know that that didn't happen. Let's talk about the beginning stages of this and the way that the defense team goes after the the collection of blood and evidence at both crime scenes, specifically at Rockingham. Yeah, well, the uh, again, that's their job. We we got to start with common sense here. The the job of the defense is to raise doubt at any any time that they can on all evidence, and in this particular. Uh, group wanted to attack each and every little piece of evidence. They claim contamination. Well, there's contamination at every crime scene. In fact, there's no such thing as a crime scene that is not contaminated. Murders don't occur in sterile lab settings. They occur out in the mud and the blood and the beer. So every crime scene is contaminated. So that that argument was ridiculous from the get-go, but it, it can be effective especially when you're preaching to a jury who's not uh, up on these types of things and doesn't realize these things. They have to be challenged. When something like this happens, they got to be challenged by the prosecution. You didn't see a lot of that. There was a lot of false and unproven allegations of evidence planning. There still is to this day. It did not happen. Uh, it would be impossible for it to happen. There's no evidence that any of this occurred, yet this flew well because, again, you have a defense that is putting the cops on trial. This was not the, uh, the, the trial of O.J. Simpson. In, in many people's minds, the police were on trial. Of course, you had uh, the Furman situation uh, that, that uh, 
completely got out of hand. I don't think much of that should have been relevant. Mark Furman was in and out of this case on day one. He had very little to do with the investigation. He was not one of the primary investigators. Yet to hear the defense build up on this, uh, you'd think he ran the whole show, and when in reality he, he didn't. Uh, they talked about, again, putting the police on trial, police mistakes. We had one, uh, one of the uh, uh, defense witnesses, a pathologist, Dr. Michael Bodden, a good man, a well-practiced physician, a coroner that he is, uh, come out and say that the police trampled through evidence and made left bloody footwear impressions all over the crime scene. It was all nonsense. There was to this day we hear people talking about that. There was only one set of bloody footwear impressions, and they were from a Bruno Mali, Bruno Mali shoes, just one. Although the defense tried to show that there were others, and we proved that those other so-called footwear impressions were not. We showed what they were, in fact, without. Uh, without any doubt, uh, you had bloody paw prints from an animal and bloody footwear impressions from Bruno Molly's. Those were the only ones there. When you put the police on trial, uh, you put them on the defense. They have to be defended, and the prosecution needs to turn things around in the right direction and defend those uh, false allegations and, and put on the real evidence in this case. And in many respects, they didn't do that. So that you know, I could go on for yeah, about thirty yeah, minutes yeah, yeah. on this type of stuff. Well, and and I want to talk a little bit about because I want to get to the witnesses. We mentioned Shively. I want to talk about Alan Park, and I want to talk a little bit about Cato and what he witnessed that night. But talking about the collection of blood along the lines of what you were saying, they attacked Dennis Fung and Andrea Mazzola, the rookie criminalist who was working with Fung, as being sloppy and that they contaminated, contaminated the crime scene with the way they went about their business. Speak to that a bit. Okay, there again, uh, police, uh, civilian criminalists, these types of folks are human beings. The, the police departments of this nation have the same problem they have to recruit from the human race. Sometimes humans make mistakes. <laughs> the so-called mistakes here were very minor, and it's ridiculous to carry on some argument that they had something to do with, with contaminating the evidence and the blood evidence. There were administrative mistakes. In other words, uh, Fung, one of the criminals, signed off on a couple of, of minor things uh, uh, that uh, were done at, at Bundy because there was a blank fill-in, and he initialed a couple of things that Mazzola had done uh, at the scene because they got busy and maybe a little overwhelmed. They didn't do anything to change the evidence. In other words, let me just put it this way. If you took all of that blood and you put all of that blood from the crime scene, you put it out in the middle of Bundy, Bundy Avenue there, and you let the traffic run up and down on it for a month, is that blood evidence contaminated? Of course it's contaminated, but why does it all come back to O.J. Simpson? Why, why, why don't you, how, how can it be contaminated to that extent? And like I said earlier, there were four labs that looked at this stuff and, and analyzed this stuff independently, and they all came up with the same results. Two victims, one suspect, and that's the only blood that they had. Sure, it's contaminated. Every crime scene is contaminated. But the defense tried to push this thing, and these minor so-called oversights 
made by criminalists into some major conspiracy. And if you don't like the conspiracy, we'll just say that they're sloppy and don't know what the hell they're doing. It was all nonsense. It was all a total sham based on a false premise that the cops were sloppy or the cops are racist, the cops lie, they plant evidence, and you can come up with one-hundredth of one-tenth of one percent of bad cops, and what about all of the others that aren't? So you build up all the negative things. That's what they do. You attack the cops. You go after the police. You go after the, because of the Rodney King situation, because of the, of the riots, and of course, uh, what set this whole thing up was, was Furman. Once they had Furman, I mean, they had the case. When they had Furman in the palm of their hand, it was essentially all over. Right, right. I, and, I, and I want to take my time getting to that. Let's talk about one of the first witnesses in the trial, Alan Park, the limousine driver who was there to pick Simpson up. Tell us about his role in this and a bit about the testimony that he gave. Sure. Alan Park was a limo driver that sent there to pick up Simpson. Now, Simpson is used to getting picked up by this limo service, but Alan Park was the, was there for the first time. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> he was there for the first time. The normal driver was off for whatever reason. And so he wanted to be early to set the right impression, so he was early. Alan Park got there uh, 25, 30 minutes early, and anybody who's used to these limo services realizes that all of them get there early, basically. When Alan Park got to the Rockingham house, he pulled up to the, uh, excuse me, to the Ashford gate, and in order to get there, he had to pass the Rockingham gate, and he maybe wasn't familiar with the setup, but he had to go around the, around the corner, and he stopped by the Ashford gate uh, where the phone was that I alluded to earlier, and he got on the phone, and this was, I believe, uh, Somewhere around 11.35, I'd have to check those times. Uh, but it was, he wouldn't expect it till about 11 o'clock, I believe. And so he was early, 11 p.m. on that Sunday night. So he's on the phone. He calls inside, and he gets the uh, a recorded message, and no one answers. There's no one there. Uh, so he's a little early. He kind of waits. And nothing happens, and he looks up uh, after several minutes there, and he sees a man walking up towards the front of the house uh, from the Rockingham Gate. And initially he doesn't recognize him, but later on he feels that that was O.J. Simpson. He believes in, you know, there's not a whole lot of light, so it's a little difficult to see the front yard of the Rockingham home because it's not well lit. But he later says, yeah, he does, in fact, believe that that's, that's Simpson that, that enters the house. So he waits for about a moment or two, and then he makes a call into the house, and Simpson picks up. And he tells him, Simpson, who he is, and I'm here to take you to the airport. And Simpson says, well, I, I, something to the effect that uh, I just got out of the shower, I'm hearing this and that, and, and uh, I'll be out shortly. So he says, fine, and he's waiting at the at the Ashford gate. Um, meanwhile, uh, Cato Kalin, after several minutes, comes out from the rear, and he lets Alan Park in with the limo, opens the Ashford gate, and, and, and lets him in. And several minutes uh, later, Simpson comes down, and he's got uh, a golf bag, and he's got two or three pieces of luggage, and he's got a small... 
half moon shaped travel bag that he puts on the pavement there and they're going to load these bags and the clubs into the limo and he's going to the airport and uh, Alan Park gets out and they start putting the luggage into the limo and Cato goes for the small half moon shaped bag and Simpson says no don't don't touch it I'll, I'll take care of that one so he picks that bag up and he puts it into the limo and they load up and they take off. And as they're driving uh, down to the airport, Park later gives us a statement that says Simpson looked like that uh, uh, he'd been sweating a lot and he had the window down, yet the air conditioning was on in, in the back of the limo. And he looked like he was a little little pressed for whatever reason, but didn't think much of it. Now, if you, I, I can carry this through to the airport because yeah, I, I, I would like that. Please, please, please take it okay. through. Take us through that. Okay, so they they're going down the freeway and uh, there's no traffic, uh, so they get to LAX and they're going to uh, American Airlines, and they they roll up and in, in LAX, Los Angeles International. There's two levels. The bottom level is arrival. The upper level is departure. So they're in the upper level departure. Uh, American Airlines and Alan Park pulls up to the front and there's hardly anyone around Uh, but he pulls up in front of a small uh, I believe it's an MG very low profile vehicle that happens to be parked there and inside that small vehicle is a man who is waiting for his wife who works at American Airlines at the counter uh, she supposedly gets off at 11, a little after, and she's running late. And so he's just waiting there, and there's no one else around. And he sees this limo pull up in front of him, and the driver jumps out. And then he sees O.J. Simpson jump out of the limo, and he looks at him, and he recognizes him. He says, oh, that's O.J. Simpson, and whatever. And, and, and a red cap comes out, and... They start uh, picking up the bags, and the red cap picks the bags up, and the uh, Alan Park, I believe, has one bag, and Simpson still has this half-moon-shaped travel bag, this small travel bag. So the red cap and the chauffeur, they go inside with the luggage, and the man in the uh, car, the MG, I believe it was, looks turns, looks around away from where the limo is, looking back over his shoulder a bit for his wife to see if she's on her way, and turns back around, and when he turns back around, he sees Simpson standing to the left of the entrance. Now, at the entrance, there are two trash containers, one on each side. They, uh, at the time, were something like 42, 44 inches high. They have a flat surface on the top, and they're open on four sides. And anybody depositing anything in there would have to stick their hand in there and uh, dump it, and then, you know, whatever whatever they had. Well, on the top of the, the trash container on the side, on the left side where Simpson is, is this half-moon-shaped travel bag. And Simpson is removing items from the, from the bag taking them out of the bag and placing them into the trash container. He can't tell what the items are and, frankly, doesn't even look. He just thinks he's in there for trash. Now, this is before the bodies have been discovered. Right. This is before anybody knows anything. 
but he's not just dropping these items in there. He's kind of pushing his arm in there, making sure that these items, whatever they are, is, is in the trash container and that they're going down uh, into the bottom and they're not just on the top of some trash somewhere. He's making sure that they're buried in this in this container. He finishes this, takes his arm out, and he zips this little half-moon-shaped travel bag closed, picks it up, and he walks on in to the, to the terminal to catch his flight. Several months pass. Obviously, a short time later, the bodies are discovered. One thing leads to another. Time passes, and we're in trial. This is uh, months later, six, seven months later. I get a call in the office during a court break, and it's this witness. He says, he tells me all that had happened. And he said, you know, I've I, uh, been watching the trial, and I'm, and I'm very upset at what I see because you should know something. He tells me this story, and he gives me the times and everything else. Well, people are saying, where's the knife? Where are the shoes? Where's the bloody clothing? Well, this is a possibility. Again, uh, I'm sure that there was incriminating evidence being dumped, but we can't prove it. So bottom line here is that we back-checked this. Uh, initially, he says that uh, um, he, he notified the defense because he had heard there was, it was a radio broadcast in the, the morning after the murders that said O.J. Simpson may be a suspect. However, he is in Chicago and the times were wrong. What had happened was, after I called the Brown family, uh, they were in shock, and somehow uh, the word got out to the media that Judith Brown had spoken to Nicole on the phone, and she thought that it was about 10.30, a quarter to 11, when they spoke on the phone. Simpson is seen at the airport just after 11, so that's an alibi for Simpson, that this witness and this MG had heard, us. so he calls the defense. The defense says, thank you very much, we'll get right back to you. Well, the defense knows better, and they never get back to him. Uh, Judith was mistaken in her times. Uh, phone records show that that call was made at 9.42, not at 10.30 or a quarter to 11. She was way off on her times because she's in shock. And when she, she made this little release to the media, unfortunately, and of course the media ran with it. So the times were off. Anyway, he tells me he's put, putting this together. They never got back to me. Well, they're not going to get back to him because he's not a defense witness. He's a prosecution witness, obviously. Right, here. right. So I get this guy. I said, where are you now? He said, I'm at my office. Well, his office is just a few miles from the airport. I said, would you do me a big favor? And he says, what? I said, without getting any accidents or anything else, did you please go to American Airlines I will get there just as quickly as I can with the photographer. We need to speak to you. He says, fine. So we shoot out right to the airport. I grab a photographer. We go out there. I have him put his car exactly where it was once the traffic cleared. We take photographs of everything, of the trash container, his line of sight, do a complete and thorough interview on this guy. This is a very important witness. Absolutely. People want to know where this stuff is. Yes. My God, this is this could be this could be the holy grail. I mean, we don't know. So we get all this stuff down. We background the trash containers. There are uh, these containers are, are collected three times a day. They're supposed to be collected three times a day, and they go to one of two common landfills. 
Well, this is months after. This is eight, nine months after the murders. What are the chances of us going to either one of these two landfills or both of these landfills and finding any evidence? You know, it's imp- it would be impossible. We just couldn't do it. Anyway, we take the witness, the statements, the photographs, the whole story to the DA, to Marcia Clark, and she looks at it and she says, well, it's kind of like a one-on-one here. Uh, we don't want him to be challenged, something like this. I said, Marcia, he's got no record. He's got no reason to, to lie. He went to the defense first. Everybody wants to know with a knife, the shoes, the clothing. How about this? Why don't you put this? She wouldn't put him on. Well, hang on, before before you go on, because I want you to speak to that, but I want I want to throw another name out to you. And then I I want you to take those two names and and then address her not calling witnesses to the stand. And that other name is Robert Heidstra. Right. Uh, Robert Heidstra now was the man walking the dogs that I alluded to earlier uh, at the time that the murders occurred. Uh, Robert Heistra heard some yelling. He later thought it. he felt pretty good that it might have been O.J. Simpson yelling. Uh, he heard a gate clanging. Well, he was across the street in an alleyway. Uh, he was probably a couple, 300 feet, three, four, maybe 400, 500 feet away when he was at the mouth of this alley that goes out onto Dorothy uh, when he heard all of this. Now, after he heard this commotion, a little bit of commotion, he saw a white vehicle, a sports-type, uh, Jeep-type vehicle. He didn't say a Bronco. He just said a white vehicle speed from the rear alley down Dorothy <clears throat> and turn right, which uh, onto uh, Bundy and go at a, at a high rate of speed and leave, leave the location. Uh, when you take that statement and you wrap it into uh, the other woman on Sam Vicente's statement, all these things, I mean, we've got Simpson leaving the scene, seen by, probably seen by these two witnesses. Can you talk about what he heard? Can you talk about what he heard? About what he heard? Yeah, yeah. Didn't he apparently hear uh, an exchange between two men? Yeah, well, no, he, he wasn't an exchange necessarily. He just heard somebody yelling with something to the effect of, hey, 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 and the clanging of a gate. This was just prior. And then he got to the mouth of the alleyway at Dorothy and sees this white vehicle speeding from, the, from down Dorothy from the alleyway and taking off down Bundy. Okay, so now talk to, talk to the point you were getting ready to make. Speak to the point about Clark not calling witnesses that could have been monumental for the prosecution. Sure. Uh, and this obviously, I can't, to this day, I'm thinking about why in hell would you not put these witnesses on? Well, the, the, the most important one in my mind was the guy at the airport. It came across completely credible. <laughs> you know, the man is he's an architect. He's a professional. Um, so I, I'm very upset with this. Well, later on, you know, things begin to come together when she is not rehabilitating certain cops. When <clears throat> when these practice defense lawyers get these civilian criminalists into a corner and they're clobbering them over the head with nonsense, she should have gotten involved in that and rehabilitated them to whatever extent that she could and she didn't. 
<clears throat> realize some of it was hopeless, but you try anyway, and you don't. You put on evidence if it's there. This is evidence that should have been put on. We find out later, and I believe that her theory behind all of this was this is LAPD on trial. I mean, it, if that's not clear to anybody who watched this trial, then you just have your head up your rear end and you're not thinking clearly. This is what they were doing. So you have to rehabilitate the police witnesses when this happens. You you put on stuff that they do. 90% of the police investigations in a murder case begins after the case is filed. That's what happened here. We're putting together all of this evidence, but we're doing it. The LAPD is doing it. That means that we have to put it on, and we have to put it on in front of a jury who, quite frankly, hates L.A. cops. They hate L.A. cops because Rodney King. They hate L.A. cops because of the riots. They think everybody is a Mark Furman. So I'm putting this on, and with the eight and a half days I was on the stand, these people would sit there and glare at me. And when I'm when I'm on uh, uh, being uh, examined by Marcia Clark, introducing evidence, they wouldn't be writing anything down. They'd just be staring. Wow. When Johnny Cochran had me on cross, they'd be writing like crazy. So I knew when I was on the stand for eight and a half days, I knew damn well then this thing is over. They're never going to convict this guy. Regardless, Marcia Clark should put on evidence, regardless of where she thinks it's going to take him. But I honestly believe that a lot of the evidence was withheld is because the police discovered it. The police put it together. And she did not want them testifying in front of this jury. She felt that using the DNA would be sufficient. And quite frankly, it should have been. But there's all of this other corroborating evidence, much of it circumstantial, but very strong circumstantial. Circumstantial evidence is very good evidence in any kind of a trial. And it's been used many times to convict people of murder. She well, didn't put it on. One of the things that we saw in the trial was that they tried to make the connection between domestic violence and these murders, and they played the 911 tapes. Were you in the courtroom when these tapes were played? Yes, in fact, I was in the courtroom every day. Okay, so tell me about what was happening in there, the mood, the jurors, the people in the, in the gallery, everyone, when, this, when these tapes were being played. Well, the people in the, <clears throat> out <clears throat> sitting in the, excuse me one second, <clears throat> things are going down the wrong way today. The people in the galley, the people out, in the, even in the media, seem to be affected, obviously. If you listen to those tapes, they're, they're horrible. Uh, the people in the jury, in my mind, and we do a lot of jury watching during these things, were just passive. They're just looking and not writing anything down. Later on, of course, some of the jurors make some, some statements that are unbelievable uh, about, you know, this is not a, a trial about uh, domestic violence. This is a murder trial. Well, sometimes domestic violence leads to murder. I mean, they just kind of looked over that. But the jury, to me, was uh, very passive. Uh, they embraced the defense. They embraced Johnny Cochran. Uh, the judge was was wanting to recuse people left and right that appeared to be more attentive. That's just my personal opinion. Uh, he was playing to the jury, trying to make them happy. I mean, putting them on a pedestal. They're there to do a job. The cops are there for a job. The DA is there to do a job. The, the defense attorneys have to do a job. The judge does. The media does. And the jury is there to do a job. 
I think that was overlooked a lot. And I agree with you. Let's talk about the, the, your time on the witness stand and the beginning when the prosecution's talking and then the other side. Talk about the, the preparation for that and then take us through those days that you sat on the witness stand. Well, I was there to introduce evidence, evidence that uh, from the crime scene, basically, the Bundy scene and a little bit of, uh, you know, follow up, this, that and the other. And like I alluded to earlier, police investigations continue after a case is filed. In fact, most of the work is done after because things have a tendency to come together over a period of time, like the witness at the airport that I think was so important. These are things that we were constantly doing. So my job was to introduce this evidence uh, through the prosecution. The defense job was to attack that. And if there's you know, if you have grounds to do that, then you go ahead and do that. that. That's doing their job. But when you go above and beyond, and I'm cross-examined by Johnny Cochran because I happen to live in a place called Simi Valley, and Simi Valley happens to be the location where the Rodney King trial of the police officers took place, then he wants to tie that in. And he's not just playing to the jury. He's playing to 50 million people watching television and media, worldwide media, and they're eating this stuff up. Another reason not to have live coverage in the courtroom. Uh, he's playing to all of these people. These cops are racist. He lives in Simi Valley. He must be one of them. That's exactly what, it, what he's trying to play. There's nothing substantive about his arguments because they had no arguments. The whole defense thing was a sham. If you have intelligent argument uh, in a defense, if you have defense evidence, you put it on. Uh, this wasn't the case, and the courts just allowed this to go on and on. And when we would have a, a break, you know, it was uh, the media was all over the place. The defense would go to the media to these little impromptu news conferences on the street and release all of this nonsense about the cops did this, the cops did that, attacking witnesses before they'd even hit the stand. We couldn't say anything because we were gagged, but the, the lawyers weren't gagged. Now, in a high-profile case, if I'm a judge, I mean, one of the first things I'm going to do is gag everybody. I don't want you blabbing on about evidence before it's been, been introduced in, 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 into this case. And this is what happened. This thing was totally out of control from day one because everybody is playing to the cameras. It was so obvious. And to this day, because of that, there's misinformation out there. One reason I wrote this postscript last year is because of all of this misinformation. And this is not how I'm going to allow this case to go down in history. It's a sham. And that's exactly how it's been treated and still is to this day. But being on the stand, introducing evidence, that's my job. But Marcia had me introduce just enough evidence to get in the blood. It was all about the blood. All of these other things about these other witnesses and, and the slow-speed slow chase that uh, we collected evidence on, uh, other witnesses that heard and saw things, this is all stuff the police did. And she knew we were on trial. We would get nowhere in her mind with this jury if we would put on this type of stuff. So she just didn't put it on. And what happened happened. Now, would, would that have changed anything in the minds of the jurors? I, I don't I don't think it would. But that's not our job. Our job is to put the evidence on. And this didn't happen and I think it was a huge mistake.
when after uh, you talk in the book about the the prosecution not rehabilitating witnesses let's let's before we get into that let's dig into your exchanges with with Johnny Cochran okay uh many of them <clears throat> in my mind uh weren't relevant i mean there were little things he'd bring up i think there was in my he's got my crime scene notes they have like 13 pages of crime scene notes and they're going through the notes and i think there was one where I discovered two pieces of change. I, I was a nickel and a penny or a nickel and a dime in the back alleyway adjacent to a, uh, a drop of blood, of Simpson's blood. Now, describing blood, I described it as tailing. That means an elongation. Tailing is, it refers to the elongation of a blood drop as it strikes a solid surface, and it's directional. It tells you the direction that it came from. Well, this was a completely round, circular drop, which indicates that the source of that drop was standing still. And so why would they all be elongated and tailing, and then one is standing still? Well, that means that the source stopped, and the two coins perhaps means that uh, the source, who was a person, reached into their pocket maybe for their keys, who Simpson tells us this is where he parks when he goes over there, something else they didn't find out about. And as he was perhaps looking for his keys, he may have dropped inadvertently dropped two coins and left the drop of blood there. Uh, so Cochran isn't discussing the technicalities of the blood drop or why the change is there. He says that when I testified, it was different than what my notes read. Well, my notes read two coins, and I think I testified that there were four coins. This was a big deal, <laughs> for, which means absolutely nothing. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of facts in this case, and, and unless you screw up a few of them, then you're a robot because you're going to make mistakes. So I had mentioned in testimony there were four coins, and I believe in my notes it said two coins, so this was a big deal, this type of stuff. He's questioning me about times of death. Okay, I'm, I'm not a professional medical uh, I'm not a physician. I'm not a pathologist. I don't work for the coroner's office. But I've worked around a lot of dead bodies, and I know some basic stuff. He's asking me about rigor mortis and, and post-mortem lividity. things to try to trip me up to make me look bad in front of the jury and in front of 50 million people on television. These are the tactics. In other words, he's avoiding all of the evidence that has been presented. He didn't want anything to do with it because it implicates his client. They're there to try to marginalize the police, to make fools out of them, do whatever they can in front of this jury and in front of the world, quite frankly. That was his mission. Some cases that we saw in this case uh, during the trial, it works. I mean, uh, this business with, uh, with an inexperienced uh, civilian criminalist uh, uh, when Fung was on the, on the stand, I right. mean, that was ridiculous. It, should, it shouldn't have happened. That had nothing to do with the relevance of the evidence. It had everything to do with the composure of the witness, and they took full advantage of that. When Fung was on the witness stand, he was grilled by Barry Sheck, who tried to make the case that they contaminated evidence, they missed evidence. Talk a little bit about Fung uh, being really persecuted by Barry Sheck. Well, again, this is a game sometimes, and, and many people who have it... Uh, got their hands dirty, don't realize that uh, sometimes people don't play fair. Uh, again, the Sheck's job
job was to make a fool out of, quite frankly, a fool out of Fung. To confound him at every every angle, every way that he possibly could and bring up little mistakes or perceived mistakes and mix him up, get him thinking about other things other than the the evidence uh, that, that he collected. Uh, in one instance, uh, there were dozens and dozens of blood droplets picked up from the scene and booked as evidence. Protocol says that when you collect a blood droplet before it's bundled, it has to be dried, not artificially, but dried naturally, and then it's bundled. There was one of those, one sample had been put away prematurely because it wasn't thoroughly dried. Does this kind of change the DNA uh, makeup of that blood droplet? No, it's got nothing to do with nothing, but there was a big deal because one of the bundles had been bundled up, had been put away, and it was still it was still damp. I mean, silly things like this. There was one incident where Andrea Mazzola, with her gloved hand, touched the sidewalk. And Barry Sheck shows this in one of the media videos. And is, is such a good actor that he elicited a gasp from the audience. And it was funny. Her hand touches, you see her hand touch the pavement, and then go back and handle evidence. Well, I'm thinking, well, so what? What does that have to do with anything? It's it, because she touched the sidewalk inadvertently and then went back to deal with evidence. Did that contaminate that evidence to show that that was O.J. Simpson's blood? Little ridiculous things like this. Again, avoiding the big picture, going after the little things. Barry Sheck is a master at doing this stuff. He get all upset about something is wrong with this case. He said, "Yeah, there is. It's it's your lies that's wrong. With this. <laughs> the misconceptions that's wrong with this. Uh, the same with Henry Lee, who's a good man and a well practiced criminalist, but some of his nonsense." was absolutely ridiculous, and people are still talking about it today. Uh, he says, well, this could be a footwear impression. Well, this could be footwear impression. We went back and discovered what he's talking about. There were three uh, little lines that uh, uh, were left, and he said at, at the scene, near the Bruno Marley footwear impressions, and he's saying, well, this could be a footwear impression, well, we went back and showed without any doubt that those uh, three lines were a fabric a blood-soaked fabric impression from the shirt of Ron Goldman. We actually showed this and proved this. Yet he says, well, this could be a, a footwear impression. The only footwear impressions there were from a Bruno Mali. It's as simple as that. So, and, and it, you know, they go back and forth on this, and it's something you guys talk extensively about in your book. Let's talk about Ron Ship, a former LAPD officer and a former friend of O.J. Simpson. Tell everyone who Ron Ship is, was, and then talk about his testimony in the case. Okay, well, Ron Ship is, uh, like I said, a former, you said a former police officer. He worked uh, L.A., uh, West, uh, West Los Angeles. Early on, years ago, befriended O.J. Simpson. Uh, Ron was a big fan, and and uh, working West L.A., uh, uh, he got to uh, uh, to know Simpson. And uh, quite frankly, Simpson. Uh, Ron is a very open, friendly, very bright guy. He likes he like he loves life. He likes to get involved in stuff. 
he would hang out with Rockingham from time to time, and frankly, I think Simpson liked him around because he's a cop. I mean, why not insulate yourself? You're a celebrity with, with cops if you can. So when this, when this went down, uh, Ron saw it for what it was. Uh, O.J. blew up. He'd seen him involved before uh, to some extent, and he truly believed that he had killed Nicole. Now, Ron, of course, befriended Nicole also. Uh, Nicole had come to him on a couple of occasions concerned about Simpson's behavior. Now, Ron Shipp had also done some, uh, done, some, done some work in domestic violence on behalf of the police department for victims of the, the domestic violence, and he spoke with Nicole on a couple of occasions uh, regarding stuff that uh, Simpson may or may not have done. I mean, Nicole didn't come out and say, you know, he beats me and I think he's going to kill me. He didn't get that far, but there was some concern to the extent that Nicole at least approached Ron and asked him about these things. So when this went down, uh, it didn't take Ron long, long to figure it out, and he put two and two together, and he looked at the evidence. He didn't look at what other people said about the evidence. He looked at it for himself and knew that Simpson, in fact, had killed, uh, killed uh, Nicole. So he became a witness and uh, gave us a statement. Now, here's a man. He's, he's uh, African-American. He's a black man. And for him to come out and testify against Simpson, he would probably going to be attacked. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. He stood up. He's got a lot of guts. Got a lot of sand, but it's more important to tell the truth than to play these games of these uh, these phony racist allegations that were going to be made. And uh, so he stood up and, and gave us a statement, and then went into court and looked OJ straight in the eye and and told OJ and told OJ's attorneys and he told the court and he told the world exactly what they did not want to hear, and that was the truth. And it took just so so much so many guts for this guy to come forward and say that, uh, you know, if there's anybody that rose above all the nonsense in this case and showed himself to be straightforward in the man that he was, it'd be Ron Ship. I agree with you, but I don't know how he kept his composure with the line of questioning Carl Douglas used in his time going after yeah. Ron Ship. Yeah, well, that's uh, defense. That's what they do. Uh, Ron Ship had been around the block. Like you said, he'd been a cop for several years. I talked to Ron from time to time. I've run into him a few times, and uh, uh, I've actually seen him socially, <clears throat> and he's still around. Uh, he did take a lot, but he expected that going in. I mean, that, that goes to his character. He's expecting all of this nonsense. Carl Douglas is a very bright man. He knows better that he was playing the game. He was part of this sham, the sham that today still says cops plant evidence. Cops are all racist. Cops lie. Uh, and this, this guy, because of the color of his skin is even worse because he's, he's gone after, uh, uh, OJ Simpson because of this. And he's now one of them. I mean, the, the people who really take it on the chin, Cops do, but if you're a certain color, uh, you may take it on the skin a little bit more, on the on the chin a little bit more uh, than other people. And Ron Ship took it all from this guy, and Carl knows better. Uh, 
Carl sometimes, you know, is a likable guy, but some of the nonsense that comes out, and it's only because he was a part of this sham from day one. And he ought to be ashamed of himself, but he won't. He just, he will say, well, he's doing his job. He's attacking uh, people like Ron Shipp, who didn't do anything but tell the truth. That's what Ron Shipp is guilty of, telling right. the truth. Let's talk about O.J. Simpson's demeanor in the courtroom. Talk, tell people how he conducted himself, how he acted, because in some of the testimony, he's caught on camera being about as smug as you can imagine. How was O.J. in court? Yeah, well, he was smug. It basically says it. Uh, he was passive for the most part. When the times came, when, when the Furman thing broke, for instance, he gets that, I told you so look, okay, and he's shaking his head, and uh, he's playing right along with the script. This whole thing is scripted, just like the glove demonstration. That's all scripted. It shouldn't have ever happened. That's another story, but it did. And the, the cameras in the courtroom allow for this. This guy is also an actor, and he's acting right along with this whole thing, depending on the testimony that's coming out. When I'm on the stand, I, uh, I'm testifying, I believe, uh, it was when he walked with me in his closet, and we're going through his closet, and I'm asking him about various things. He's already accused me of stealing money from him, and... I tell, and I believe that came up again in a negative context. You're yeah. not going to get the positive context from the defense. Uh, and we're talking about items, and I kind of glanced over to him, alluding to him, and he's kind of shaking his head, and I see him mouth the word liar. Uh, so he's playing right along with the script, and this this whole thing was scripted, believe me, from 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 day one, and what the defense is going to do. And unfortunately, the prosecution just fell into it. Now let's talk about the moment that everything changes and the defense found manna from heaven, if you will, in the form <laughs> of Mark Furman. First of yeah. all, tell us about the Mark Furman you knew pre this trial and what you learned about him when those tapes were discovered and entered into evidence and the way that the defense was doing what I call end zone dancing uh, as they found this stuff out. Yeah, well, Mark Furman was a detective for West Los Angeles Division. He was not a homicide detective, still isn't, regardless of what you hear on television, never was a homicide detective. He'd assisted at a couple of other murder scenes. He was a bright guy, and he was present at Bundy because he was on call from West Los Angeles Division. They moved the on-call around to various people. When this case was transferred over to RHD, my unit, I think he was miffed. I think he was upset because he felt that they should keep it. Um, in his notes, he uses a lot of supposition in his crime scene notes. These are just indications of of his inexperience. I mean, he even went so far as to look at the bodies and say that he believed that they were possibly the victims of gunshot wounds. This is the level of inexperience here. <laughs> he made assumptions and suppositions about all of the evidence, about a, a bloody fingerprint that was never there, uh, about a pizza menu that didn't exist. He, he just didn't know basic things about homicide investigation and, and caused a lot of problems that the defense could have used had they been more practiced at being defense attorneys in murder cases, which they were not. Anyway, Furman inserts himself. Uh, we get up to Rockingham. 
that morning, and I, I left him with Cato Kalin once we realized Arnell was also there and spoke with her, and I said, I want you to interview Cato Kalin, uh, which he did. And this is a little off, but I'll get back on subject in a second. Uh, Cato tells him that he heard some thumps in the back wall, so Furman did the proper thing in following up on that interview. He went to the back wall, and he finds the bloody glove. He didn't plan anything. It would have been impossible for him to do that anyway. So he did fairly good police work that night. But everything ended after that when these when these tapes emerged and found out the, the racist rants uh, that he would get into on tape. Now, he says this was for a movie script, and some of it probably was, but... He ends up having a relationship with this woman, this writer, and he is revealing all of these things and made up in his mind that said cops do. And all of it, is, it was disgusting. It was what cops would do to people and uh, under all these ridiculous circumstances. All of this was investigated by the police department, and none of it was true. He's making up all of these things except his state of mind, which apparently was true, which is a racist state of mind. And, you know, you're dropping the N-word here and there and then the F-bomb and this and that and all these. It's like them versus us in these tapes. Uh, were they relevant to this case? No. Are they relevant showing his racism? Yes. But what does one have to do with the other? So the defense uh, gets all of these tapes and all of a sudden Furman looks for a target. He says, it's not me, it's them. You know, there's a certain level of sociopathy here that I'm looking at. He's blaming everyone else but himself for his own problems. He's coming up with all of these statements on tape, and it's them, it's not me, and oh, I didn't mean anything by that. Well, he gets laid out pretty good, and he gets accused of things. They add on, well, he must have planted the glove and everything else. Well, he didn't plant the glove or blood, or neither did anyone else. It didn't happen. Let, if, you, if you could, happen, Tom, I... I'd like you to talk. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. Talk about the, the how he did not have the opportunity to have done the things that he was accused of doing. Yeah, he would. Like you said, he wouldn't have had the opportunity. If you look at the crime scene log, we alluded to this earlier. I think he and Ron Phillips were like fifteen and sixteen at the scene, and the glove was already there. Uh, what about the other glove at Rockingham? Could he have planted it? There was only one glove at Bundy. Everybody only saw one glove at Bundy. They didn't see two gloves. The other glove, he was the one that found it. That, you know, the defense is in luck there. They can they can push this thing and say, well, he must have planted it. If there's evidence of these things, let's see the evidence. Alan Dershowitz says, my partner planted blood on the socks. Well, let's see the evidence. These people aren't even challenged to this day 23 years later about all of these allegations. Mark Furman could not have planted anything. Is Mark Furman an inexperienced, inept, racist? He sure as hell acts like it. If he's not out of that, he's a complete dummy. And he is not a dummy. He's an intelligent man. He knows better. Uh, he's screwed up, and all he can do is point fingers in every direction but his own. Again, he's his own worst enemy, and it took him 20 years to finally realize that and state that publicly. Uh, to this day... He hasn't changed his ways. I mean, it's it's all about them. It's 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 not about me. Uh, so I, I have a problem with that because he turns out to be the the big problem in the case. 
can we blame him for the case being blown for the for the acquittal? You can't do that. That's not on him. Did he look awful bad when he gets on the stand and pleads the fifth when asked if he plants evidence? That looks horrible. But did that mean that he's the only reason that this case uh, was it, there was an acquittal? You can't say that. No. You have to deal with this. There's a very small percentage of cops out there who are bad cops. We've all seen them. We will always have them, again, because what I said earlier, we recruit from the human race. There is no RoboCop. That doesn't exist. There are bad cops, but they're such a minority is, is to be infinitesimal. It's, that's just what happens, and unfortunately, in this case, everything came at the wrong time. Let's talk about the moment in the courtroom where Chris Darden decides to let O.J. try on those gloves. Yeah, well, I like Chris. I like him a lot. He's a bright man. He's a, he's a, he's a good prosecutor. He means well. Um, he screwed up, and he knows it, and he's publicly stated that. You don't do that. Okay, the first thing here that I never understood, and I've never had an explanation to this day, why in hell does anybody who's putting these murder scene gloves, one at Rockingham, one at Bundy, when they put them on their hands, why are they wearing latex gloves underneath? Are they somehow going to further contaminate these gloves? I mean, the gloves have already been tested. Right. Nothing else is going to happen to these gloves. Why do we have latex gloves on? I challenge anybody, anybody with any sized hands to put on a pair of latex gloves and then easily slip on a pair of leather gloves over that. Regardless of the shrinkage factor or anything else, you cannot get them on properly. It just doesn't happen. So for whatever reason, Chris decides to do this. Marsha was against it. Chris wanted to do it, uh, and he was adamant. So it gets done. Now, now if you want to do this, fine. We do it in chambers. We call it in chambers with the judge. All of the attorneys, the suspect, the judge, the court reporter, everybody goes into chambers, and we do it back there before we ever come out in front of 50 million people and act in front of them by putting these gloves on. We do it in chambers, and then they make this decision whether they're going to come out with it. That should not have happened. I mean, this is just a gift to the defense. If these were a, a perfect match, you still don't do it. Simpson has large hands. My partner, Phil Van Adder, had larger hands, believe it or not, than Simpson. Phil was a big guy. Phil had no problem at all putting those gloves on because he wanted to. If you don't want to put a pair of gloves on, you're not going to put them on. <laughs> right. Simpson is acting in front of not just the jury, but 50 million people in a worldwide audience and media. And he put on a hell of a show. He's an actor. That should not have happened. But this, the reality of it is it, it, the gloves did fit. This is not a GQ fit. They fit if he wanted them to fit. These were an extra large pair of gloves. We also did background and found out that Nicole purchased these gloves at Bloomingdale's in New York. We've got all that records that, that uh, we, we discovered where she got them in the first place. So he had all of these evidence, but when you put that on, it, it's so simple. Oh, they don't fit. And to, to look at the jurors when that happened, laughing amongst one another, it was another time that I knew this whole show was over. I mean, they're, they're looking at it and they're, uh, gesturing towards each other, and this is like a like a comedy skit is what it, it, it turned out to be. 
Uh, I'm sitting in the back of the courtroom, and and, and F. Lee Bailey's just smiling. He runs back like a little kid laughing and giggling, and he whispers in my ear, says, why did you let him do that? And I didn't really know what was going to happen because Chris didn't tell anybody. He didn't tell anybody that this was going to happen. We didn't know about this. And I'm looking, and I said, well, they look like they fit to me because they're on his hands. Do they have to be a perfect fit? No, and they can't possibly be a perfect fit anyway because he's got latex on. So that just shouldn't have been. That should, should not have happened in the first place. Be- before we move to the closing argument part of this, lately, recently, as I'm sure you've seen, a detective in Texas, Bill Deere, or excuse me, a private investigator in Texas, Bill Deere, has said that he believes Jason Simpson committed these murders. Tell us why that is totally false and implausible. Again, I'm going to get back to the old homicide cops adage, when all else fails, go with the evidence. There is absolutely no evidence to show that Jason was involved. I did a three or four part series uh, documentary on that very case with Bill Deere, who produced this thing. Uh, It came out in January uh, they were two independent investigators that investigated this, and I spent hours with them, and we went through everything and showed that it would have been impossible for this to happen. I actually uh, saw Bill that. Deere, I saw that, Tom. I actually saw that okay. program. Good. Uh, and that, I kind of think that that definitively puts that whole whole thing to rest, but the bottom line is there's absolutely no evidence uh, beyond any doubt now, if, if Jason had been involved, there would be something something uh, to show that. Uh, he was not involved, and there's no, no evidence to show it. It's as simple as that. I, I could say that, um, that you, that I say, Clay, that you're a suspect. Well, okay, I'm a suspect. Show me some evidence. There's as much evidence against you as there is against Jason. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, there you go. I don't think you were around. I don't think I was around in L.A. No. then. So listen, let's talk about the, the, the closing arguments by the defense and the prosecution. You had already come to the conclusion that I think was a logical one, that this was this was a slam dunk for the defense based on the jury makeup and the way that all these things had been handled. But as you're watching the closing arguments, what are you thinking? That, again, the, the circus goes on. Um, I hate to say this, and, I, and you know, the prosecution did appear to be a bit hapless in putting on their, their case because the Furman revelations had come out. You had Furman on the stand with his lawyer standing next to him, pleading the fifth when asked if he planted evidence. You don't do that. if You, you say, hell no, I don't plant evidence. I never have, and you don't tell me I plant it. You should get pissed. You should get upset. He's advised by his attorney not to. Well, that, that, that didn't help a damn thing. He's convicted of it anyway, convicted of lying regardless. So you, you don't lay back and say, well, I plead the fifth. and you know, that. that just gives anybody an invitation to say, well, my God, of course they, they must have planted evidence. Even if they didn't, he's not even admitting to not planting evidence. He's not saying he didn't. So, I mean, it was over. When, when Furman pleads the fifth, this case is over. Did he plant evidence? No. He never had, and there's, there's no evidence of that. But the case was over. So the arguments from the prosecution looked pretty pitiful. Johnny got on the soapbox and did what Johnny does, and he's, he's an expert, you know, and all of this nonsense. Unfortunately, you know, if you ever sat now with Johnny Cochran and had an opportunity to spend some time with him, you'd really like him. I mean, he's a funny guy. He's clever. 
He's very personable, but when he's on the stand, you're on the stand, and he's coming at you, it's a completely different story. He pushes the truth. He pushes the envelope. Uh, this nonsense about the twin devils of deception. I mean, he's tying Van Adder and Furman together. They hated one another. They absolutely <laughs> hated one another. And he's tying them together, these twin devils of deception, and the cops do this and the cops do that. In his opening, Johnny had said that he was going to put on all of these witnesses. He's going to put on a woman by the name of Marianne Gertrude, and Marianne Gertrude was going to say she was there the night of the murders. And four men committed this, and and she's without a doubt the witness that's going to turn this trial. We never saw Marianne Gertrude, and we don't even know that that person exists. So all of these things, that's what the defense is supposed to do until you cross the line. When you when you start lying about things, you cross the line. Uh, it's evidence. This is not evidence. Opening and closing statements are never evidence. But Cochran is coming off in his closing like this is all evidence. Uh, this business about the gloves, he just had a ball with the gloves, and he's all all the time wearing this, this ski cap, uh, which is another piece of evidence that we should have talked about much more. He's got the ski cap on his head as he's making his argument, which is, uh, this man is a showman, and make no mistake, Johnny Cochran is very bright, and he knew exactly what he was doing. Six months before the murders, uh, we have found a witness, again, after this case had been filed, who lived on Gretna Green, which which was where Nicole lived about six, eight months prior to the murders, her other house. We found a neighbor up there who actually identified Simpson loitering around her house late one night with this very same type of cap on his head. That's important stuff. Wow. We never saw that introduced. Again, there's dozens of pieces of evidence you never saw. But this cap, that, and I'm looking at it, as he, Johnny, as he's talking, and I'm thinking, you know, this is a, a very important piece of evidence that he's, he's just acting like it's, it's nothing. If I'm the judge, I'm going to say, take that thing off your head. Well, this is a piece of evidence you're playing with, being so light with. Oh, wait a minute. That was the actual cap? Yes. Oh, <laughs> piece of evidence i i thought that was a cap he had with him that was the actual cap and the judge let him well, do that not, uh, let me let me justify if it's not then it's the exact same type uh i believe it was i don't know where he would have come up with something like that we can check on that wow. but I, I believe it was because i don't know of any other cap that i saw in a courtroom it's the same as the gloves those were the real gloves that simpson had on his hands wow and uh, my impression was that indeed was the cap. If someone can come up and say, no, no, that was another one, then there was another cap in the courtroom. Now, there were also three or four other caps we got from the, from the search warrant. There's several caps like that that were introduced into evidence. Right. When, um, when they're finished with closing and you, it, the case is given to the jury, uh, it's all said and done, it's in their hands, and then you find out that they basically took 35 seconds to come to a decision. What did you think? Well, that's an exaggeration, Clay. Actually, it's 35 minutes. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I was. No, it, thinking, it, it was a purposeful exaggeration, but yes. <laughs> no, no, I know. I'm, I, I, you look at this case, so you got almost nine months of, of presentations of evidence, right? Nine months. Right. If I don't care if he's guilty, if he's not guilty, whatever. 
at least have the courtesy and the respect for the court to take a few hours to look at it. How could you possibly discuss all of this evidence in four hours? And by the way, those four hours, two hours was for lunch. They went to lunch. Now, they did a ballot. They went around the first time around, and there were two women who said who voted for guilty. It was 10 to 2 for acquittal the first time around. It took the rest of the jurors a little little more than an hour, I guess, a little less than an hour to convince those two jurors to roll over. We have never seen those two jurors interviewed that I know that can come out and justify what they did. Some of the jurors were, of course, uh, later on they were interviewed, and some of the statements just were shocking that they came up with. But, again, it was LAPD on trial. And if if you want to score this thing, the defense did a hell of a job putting the cops on trial. Uh, They had some willing participants and people like Mark Farman. Uh, So this is what's thrown at this jury. And I'll be a little bit objective here. You know, these jurors may have had negative-type incidents with cops. I mean, that happens. when you Usually when most people, they're only relationships with with the police or when they get stopped and somebody writes them a ticket or they're they're the victim of a crime and or maybe they got a, a cop who's had a bad day when they're a witness and something it's always a negative context i can see that and there have been bad relations in the past uh which we could talk about as a completely another story uh and i can see some of that stuff but this isn't about any of that this is about a killed b and c and the evidence shows us when all else fails, you go with that evidence. They didn't look at the evidence. They looked through a different lens. They don't like cops. And again, the Furman thing just, you know, of course, topped everything off. They didn't deliberate the evidence. If I, when I come to the judge and I say, judge, we've got a verdict. And again, I've got Lance Edo has never defended himself. But if I'm the judge or anybody... If the foreman comes to you and says, after nine months of testimony, and they come to you in four hours and say, we have a verdict, I don't care what the verdict is. I'm going to ask some questions. I'm going to say, well, did you do as I was instru- you were instructed to do? Did you deliberate this evidence? Did you discuss this, that, and the other? And you couldn't have possibly covered any 1% of the evidence as you were instructed to do. So there's something wrong. They didn't do that, and they just took it as it was. I think uh, Ito probably assumed, like most people did, uh, that this was going to be a conviction. I knew better all along. No way. So the verdict comes down, and they acquit on all charges, and everyone has seen the clip of what was happening in the courtroom as the verdict is read, Johnny Cochran's reaction, O.J.'s reaction, what about that juror who, as he was walking out of the room, held up the the you know the one-handed fist the um, and as he as he's looking at OJ as he leaves? Did you see that happened happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw all of that, and the, and the jury. It's like you know, we won. Uh, we got him. We won. You know, and I'm, I'm thinking that deep in their hearts, these aren't stupid people. They know damn well what happened, but this is get back. Now, in their minds and in their hearts, did they think this was justified? No doubt they did. Was it? No. This is a completely different thing. This person, regardless of the color of their skin, their gender, their background, anything else, killed this person. 
regardless of their gender or the color of their skin. It's as simple as that, and the evidence tells us that. They don't look at it like that. All of this stuff was internalized. It was all personalized. And this is, this is what happened. Only two jurors uh, were present where it wasn't internalized, and it took a very short time to intimidate them to the extent that they rolled over. So this was all, all set from, from the beginning. The uh, uh, psychology employed by the defense was far superior to that of the prosecution. Prosecution did not put on all of the evidence. They played from a defensive standpoint. Uh, the courts allowed people to just walk over this stuff. Uh, defense attorneys were could have been caught in contempt. I don't know how many times uh, Johnny was kind of running the trial unofficially. Uh, it just the whole thing was bad. It was all a circus. It was all for television. Again, the two biggest faults of this entire trial: number one, live television. You don't have these things in live television because it affects testimony. It intimidates witnesses, and the attorneys play to the cameras. You don't do this. It follows everything up. And the other thing is the lack of a gag order. You gag attorneys so that they don't go out on the break and, and talk about witnesses before they've hit the, hit the witness stand, and they don't talk about evidence before it's presented, because to this day we still hear these false perceptions about all of this evidence. And the media just allows this to happen because if they – answer all of these questions, like I've said before, this whole thing goes away, and they don't want it to go away. Right. Uh, Clay, this is going to all begin again when this guy gets out in October. Well, uh, and, and it's not going to go away. You're right, and I want to get to that in just a second. And so let's move past the verdict and talk about the way that Simpson conducted himself. And uh, well, You know what? Before we do that, let's get to the postscript of the book, because I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. You clear up some of the perceptions. You clear up 14 perceptions and give the reality of what happened. You talk about some of the players and the trial. Um, why did you decide to do the postscript and then talk about what's in it? Well, uh, I've done a lot of documentaries and interviews, and you know, I'm talking about a couple hundred of these things over the last 20-some-odd years as far as specials, documentaries, interviews, appearances. I've done over 100 uh, symposiums for law enforcement all over the Canada, uh, and I've been into this thing a lot over the years. And I find myself still talking about the same things, about perceptions, false perceptions, and the realities. I'm getting a lot of questions from law enforcement. When law enforcement has a lot of questions, then you know that there haven't been a lot of answers. One way to address all this is to put it into a book. And so I, I did this postscript. I believe we finished it last uh, October, September, October. And we had a reprint and did a fourth edition on the book because of that, which is as strong today as it was then. All of this stuff is the same thing as it was 22 years ago. Nothing has changed except that these perceptions are still out there. Uh, I did a 20th anniversary thing for Fox. It was a special that they did. And when we're at the end of it, the commentator uh, comes out and said, well, you know, there's still a lot of questions about, like, well, when Ben Adder's walking around with a vial of blood in his pocket, I said, oh, my God, what are you talking about? No, that didn't happen. So I had to challenge that because no one else does. These things never happen that they're still talking about. So the only way that I'm going to put this down is, is write it and put it into this book, and it's there forever. 
And if people really want to know what happened about all of this, then they're going to read this book, and it's there. And it's all provable. Uh, when Alan Dershowitz comes out and says that Van Adder poured uh, Nicole's blood on the vial on the Simpson socks, I'm going to tell you that that did not happen and why this man lies. You know, if there's the slightest bit of evidence that shows that this even could have happened, fine. But he's never challenged. Okay, this did not happen. And he waits until Phil is dead before he comes out and attacks him. I just I couldn't believe it. They've always alleged that cops plant evidence, okay? Am I saying that cops have never planted evidence? No. I can say without any doubt no evidence has ever been planted in this case, and there's no evidence of that. Uh, but people to this day still talk about that. The media doesn't want this to go away. Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to let roll over because there's nobody else to speak up. The LAPD will never come out. And because it, it's a bureaucracy and they're under a lot of pressure in a lot of other ways, they're not going to come out and address these issues. The only one left to do that is me, and I continue to do it. Uh, when people lie and people uh, uh, confuse issues with, with, with lies, I mean, I, you've got to come out and, and defend what you've done. And it just hasn't happened. So this how, is how I've done it, and that's by writing this uh, postscript. Let's talk about a couple of the documentaries or a couple of the OJ-centered shows last year that grabbed so much attention. First, the Fox Network series with John Travolta and Courtney Vance and all of them, The People versus OJ Simpson. Your thoughts on that, and did you participate in the making of any of that? Yeah, no, I did not, and neither did anyone who had anything to do with this case which is, is, is kind of strange. Uh, if you're going to put on a documentary, you think you'd interview some of the players. The defense, prosecution, didn't matter. Uh, not one person who had anything to do with this case was ever interviewed relative to this thing put on. This is all based on a book by Jeffrey Tubin. Jeffrey Tubin is a CNN uh, analyst. He's a correspondent. He's been around for a while. He's a writer. Um, and I have nothing but problems with him. He has completely misrepresented us in his book, and we address that in this book, all of the falsehoods and misrepresentations. Uh, he's one of these people that, frankly, just doesn't know what he's talking about. I, uh, he's, he's the guy that's sitting up in the bleachers, way on the top of the bleachers watching the game, and half of the game he's out buying a beer and a hot dog, and he's missing the action on the field. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're on the field playing the game. We're in the huddle. And doing the whole nine yards, it's got to be done in the game. He has no idea what's going on down there. But because he has a writing bagger, he's going to write all about it. Tubin came to us on several occasions during the trial. He actually stopped me on the street once. He phoned me. I still have a letter that he sent to me practically begging Phil and I to help him write his book because he couldn't do it, in his words, by himself. He wanted to put out an honest uh revelations about the case he wanted inside story he wanted from us we refused to do it so what was his answer to that he turns around and bites us in the back sets up a straw man in the da's office saying that uh, uh, this that and the other happened it's just his entire book is supposition he's making all of these things up and laying us out marginalizing everything we did and this is what this series is based on this is a comic book edition this is like the O.J. Simpson Odyssey comic book edition is what I called it. 
Well, I tell you what, uh, Shapiro certainly has a case to sue John Travolta over the way that Shapiro was portrayed in that. I don't know him at all, but <laughs> my God, <Yeah. laughs> no, it was it was uh, the acting was overdone. I mean, in the story again, the storyline. I Hollywood, we know all Hollywood is all about. It's, it's mostly all BS. Uh, but they write their stories to sell to make money, and uh, the characterizations of the, of the of everybody was way off. Uh, the Marsha Clark thing, however, was pretty close. It was pretty close in. Of course, she embraced this thing. She ended up at the Academy Awards, uh, or at the Emmys, I believe it was, with the actress who played her. So she embraced this thing all along because. Uh, uh, I think they looked at her character much more sympathetically uh, because of the woman thing, perhaps, because Marcia felt that, uh, you know, people were were saying nasty things about her and it wasn't her fault uh, that things came out that the way that they did. So she was portrayed in more of a sympathetic uh, fashion. But overall, you know, uh, if you're going to grade this thing, I mean, it's a failure because it was just, it's not true. The things that they throughout in this case like i never spoke to oj in the in the bronco i spoke to ac well no i never spoke to ac i had nothing to do with it i mean this is just little things but they're full of them and and the book or the the, the series goes as far as it can to marginalize everything the cops did and empathize things that marcia did and it's just it's all based on tubin's book and it's get back at your time it's just it's all nonsense and then the ESPN 3430 series that is so acclaimed, the people, uh, O.J. Simpson or O.J. Made in America. I saw you in that documentary. Talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, I did that like I'm willing to do anything to get the truth out. Well, the producers here weren't necessarily interested in that. They wanted to make this a race issue. I did a four-and-one-half-hour interview. Now, this isn't with breaks. This isn't grabbed a cup of coffee. This is sit down face-to-face with the producer four-and-one-half hours. You probably saw four-and-one-half minutes of me <laughs> saying anything substantive about the evidence because it had nothing to do with the evidence. Right. It had to do with the so-called racist LAPD. They reach back over 50 years. That's over a half a century to four or five very negative incidents that the LAP was involved in that involved uh, racial type issues that were made into racial issues that weren't into a lot of now they were bad bad situations one of them of course was Rodney King no one can look at the Rodney King video and then say that yeah that's okay you know it was terrible that was one of those negative things uh, there was another one a bad shooting that happened back in the early 60s uh, there was it was a, a search warrant to, um, conducted by the LAPD where the house of the people was trashed. So they got a handful of these very negative situations where the cops were wrong. There's no question they were wrong. These were bad incidents with the, with the exception of that first shooting, which was an accidental. These were terrible things that shouldn't have happened. The cops were disciplined. In a couple of instances, the cops were not only disciplined, they went to prison. These, these people were weeded out. This is over 51 years of negative things. How about the hundreds of thousands of contacts Well, none of this happened? So they highlight in this, this particular documentary that this was the reasons that the jury came to their conclusions. When, most, when a lot of these things happened, the jurors weren't even born yet, for God's sakes. But he pushes this thing, and it's all about race. It, 
brought things back almost into the 50s. I mean, when there was really you know, Jim Crow and all these horrible things that happened years ago, you're bringing them all to light, and you say, we still have this racist police department. Well, I'm here to tell you, you do not have a racist police department. If you've got one or two people, you weed them out, you deal with them as they come up. This is, again, a department like any other has to... Uh, draw from the human race. You're going to have bad people, and when you do, you deal with them. But instead, this documentary paints the whole police department as negative. They marginalize us every way that they can. And this thing goes on and wins an Academy Award? I mean, it's just, it, that's scary. That's really scary, because 99.9% .9 of cops are out there to try to do their job. They give a damn. They're, they're not sociopaths. They're they're not killers. Uh, they're not racist or anything else. They're trying to do a damn good job, and for the most part, they do. But you're never going to hear about those positive things. You're going to hear about a handful of negative things over a 51-year period, and you're going to paint a broad brush in the department, and this is the LAPD Day, and it's wrong. It's dishonest. Let's talk about right now. Well, first, before we get to right now, the bungled burglary in Vegas. What about that, Tom? <laughs> well, yeah, um, that case, if I had that case in Los Angeles with those players, even with O.J. Simpson, especially, I guess, with O.J. Simpson, and I took that case to the district attorney in Los Angeles, first I'd get the look, like, are you serious? <laughs> I mean, get out of here with that. Don't waste our time. That case would never, ever have been filed in Los Angeles. Yet he not only gets filed in Nevada, this guy gets sent to prison for nine years. We've got killers that don't get nine years in prison in California. It never would have happened here. That case never would have been filed. Uh, was that a get-back thing? Maybe. You know, I don't know for sure. I don't know what's in the judge of the jury's hearts and minds back there. Uh, all I can tell you, I don't, and I, I think it's fine that he's in prison, but he should be in prison for murder for the rest of his life. Uh, this was a humbug. It was a humbug here. It was a humbug there. I mean, he, for all the, the normal reasons, he thinks it's his property. Did they did they display a gun? Yeah, they kind of displayed it, but nobody got shot. Nobody got hit with a gun. And there's no evidence that the gun was even pointed at anybody. He intimidated these guys. Technically, it's a robbery, but everybody knew one another. I mean, he thinks it's his property. Uh, the fact that this even got filed is is just unbelievable. Uh, so was it was it a little bit of a get back? Probably was. Well, he's recently been paroled and will be walking the streets of Florida at some point after the beginning of October. What are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, he says he's going to go straight and lead his life and uh, maybe a little golf and maybe a little bit of this. And uh, I don't think uh, a narcissist changes their stripe. You know, he's still a sociopath. I think there's going to be other incidents he's going to get into eventually. He's going to, you know, break away from this prison thing and get back into living his life where he considers it normally, uh, normal life. Um, I just can't see someone that's the, uh, the narcissist that he is staying away from the media. Uh, he, he just can't. And he put on a, he put on a show there for those for those folks. Uh, he shouldn't have been there in the first place. The fact that he got out is not unusual. They're not doing any anybody any favors by keeping him there for nine years and then finally letting him out. Uh, he shouldn't be in prison for that, but 
will he go away? No, he's he's not going anywhere, and I I think we're going to see some more of him. Well, listen, I can't say enough about how enjoyable your book is and having spoken with you for so long about this. I, I, I love your ability to tell stories. I want to end with this. In 2017, of course, you've seen the way law enforcement has been portrayed on television. As you know, here in Baton Rouge, we were the subject of a lot of media attention because of the three officers assassinated and two of the officers who lived, one of which is still struggling to get close to normalcy now at a hospital in Houston. What's your thoughts about cops, the media and the public in 2017? Well, you know, it's. Obviously, I'm going to be biased towards the police because I've been there, and I'm looking at these these three men down there, and what they lost, you know, lost their lives and, and their families, and and unfortunately, this is becoming all too common. You got the Dallas situation; we've got cops being shot left and right. They're being disrespected. What they do is being disrespected. I think the media could be a little more responsible, and relay to the general public that 99.9% of cops give a damn. They're out there to do a job. They're putting their ass on the line, quite frankly, and nobody seems to care. Uh, you get the wrong people getting shot, and that's what's happening here. These these men and these women are out there putting it on the line every day. They're not out there to screw over people. Uh, they're not racist. They don't plant evidence. They're not liars. You got a lot of very fine people out there uh, wearing the badge today, and I think they're being disrespected. I think the media, like I said, could go a long ways in pushing this out to to, to the general public. Uh, the departments themselves are under siege. The problem with a lot of departments, most of them, if not all, they're all bureaucracies. And so they're, they're dealt like bureaucracies. You can't have yes people running these departments. They, there has to be a certain autonomy. There has to be a respect for the law and respect for the police. Now, if they screw up, again, you take care of them at, at a, a, a one-on-one basis. We've seen those negative things happen. But these are, again, human beings. And the 99.9% they are out there trying to do a job they care, and they're not getting the respect, and I lay a lot of that on the media. I don't, I don't think the media is uh, telling the true story. I think they, uh, these, like these documentaries, these two documentaries we just discussed, their main purpose is to marginalize the police and what the police do. And this is wrong. This is not what's, what's really happening out there. And I think the media needs to, to understand that and, and, and try to get behind their police a little bit more and support them. Well, again, it's uh, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. I I hope that uh, that in the future you'll make a little time to come back and talk with us when there are things going on, both with law enforcement and maybe anything with Simpson down the road. It's it's really been our pleasure. Okay, Clay, it's been mine too. I appreciate it. Good talking to you. This is Dr. Mary Catherine Roderick, and I'm Katie Fetzer. We're the owners and co-founders of The Wellness Studio, a mental health practice with locations here in Baton Rouge and Covington. We are also your host for The Waiting Room Podcast here on podcast225.com. Our podcast is a journey into the world of mental health. On our show, we're going to discuss some of the various forms of mental health conditions. We're also going to shed light on the various ways our listeners can get a better understanding of how the mind works and why we do what we do. So subscribe today to get The Waiting Room Podcast here on podcast225.com, iTunes, and the Talk 107 mobile app.
This is Jeff LaDuff, retired chief of police for the city of Baton Rouge. I'm Kelly LaDuff, co-owner of Open Eyes Safety Training and Consulting. Open Eyes is focused on providing quality safety solutions that give businesses and employees the skill set needed to recognize and react to dangerous situations. On a daily basis, we hear yet another story of workplace violence or active shooter. Open Eyes offers a unique approach to keeping you and your businesses safe through site analysis, technology recommendations, policy review, and employee training. To set up a consultation for your business, call us today at 225-313-9713 or visit us at our website at openeyesafetytraining.com. We say keep open eyes because 10% of our population cause 90% of our problems. See them before they see you. Welcome back to The Clay Young Show. Well, there you have it. The longest of our three discussions on the saga of O.J. Simpson. Now, most of you know, (laughs) within the next month and a half, maybe he's going to be getting out of prison in Vegas and on parole and likely will be captivating the media again as he moves to Florida. It's just amazing when you think about the transition that man's life has taken from poverty to prominence to being a pariah. By the way, that alliteration was off the top of my head. I I think I I scored about four out of five on that one, just to say off the top of my head. (laughs) But just that fast, he went from being loved to hated. Well, actually not that fast. I mean, it took 50 years, basically, 50 years of his life from being an athlete at the University of of Southern California to being an all-time great in the NFL and then a media figure after the fact, someone that, you know, no one knew about O.J. Simpson's issues with his wife, Nicole, in California because, I mean, the Internet didn't exist to get information around like that. In fact, and I referenced it in, in episode one, watching the NBA Finals game between the Knicks and the Rockets, when Bob Costas breaks in to talk about this slow speed chase, I mean, that was the first that I had thought about something other than what you saw from O.J. Simpson on television. You just knew he was a, he was a great football player. He was a studio analyst and a, at times a sideline reporter for NBC. And you just never knew about this stuff. And so, so much of what we were learning during the trial was brand new to us. Maybe people in California had heard it. Maybe it had made the papers there. And I didn't see the Roy Firestone interview on ESPN when OJ talked about that. I just didn't see it. So I had no concept of this part of his life. And then what he has become since then. And then there are still people who make this out to be something other than what it is. So you got a chance to hear the inside track on what happened with OJ all those years ago, and then Detective Lang's thoughts on the recent OJ hysteria, and that includes the TV series last year, the documentary by ESPN, and then he talked about the parole and everything happening with him. I got to tell you, he is a joy to talk to, and he was so accommodating to us over the course of our conversations, 
And uh, I just appreciated all the time that he gave us. And again, I've been encouraging you to do this since part one of our conversation. Go out and buy that book. It's a worthwhile purchase. I mean, it's just over 400 pages and it is a page turner. I mean, he talks about players in the case from the attorneys to some of the media figures. He talks about, in detail, this this O.J. Made in America documentary. Now, this is a part of the postscript that was added to the book last year. So, anyway, it's evidence dismissed, the inside story of the the police investigation of O.J. Simpson. It's been my pleasure. Next week, we'll have some feedback on this show. Look forward to uh, giving you information on that. But until then, thank you so much for listening. Again, special thanks to Detective Tom Lang for making so much time for us. And we appreciate you again listening to The Clay Young Show here on podcast225.com. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of The Clay Young Show.